0: Well, good morning again, Lindsley Avenue. It's hard to believe that it's already August. In a year when very little is happening, the one thing that does continue to happen is the passage of time. Because here it is, August already. I want to spend a few moments this morning talking about a subject that naturally comes to mind in August. And that subject, of course, is the birth of Jesus. So let's take a few moments to look at the birth of Jesus outside of the seasonal time when it seems to be everywhere, but to focus on it and its importance to all of us. So let's take a look at Jesus' birth. First question, how important is the birth of Jesus to God? Well, let's take a look. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Beginning in verse 8, we read, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were very afraid. First of all, you and I would have been scared to death if something like that had happened to us. Angels don't just usually appear from out of nowhere on a peaceful evening out in the field. In this case, the angel said to them, fear not. After all, they were very, very afraid, as you and I would have been. fear not, for behold... I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Luke chapter 2. I want to point out a couple of things as we're getting started. Who were the first people that God announced the birth of his son to? Shepherds out in the field. You know, we typically have a different idea, I think, of shepherds than was common in the first century. It is very true shepherds often stood for the ruler of God's people. Uh, Jesus, in fact, is the good shepherd. But by and large, shepherds in society were not viewed very kindly at all shepherds existed on the outskirts of society they often were very transient they didn't really have a home and much like sometimes we will view individuals at a first judgment who are transient they were viewed as very disreputable they, were, they would have been the kind of people you would have kept your distance from perhaps out of a pre-judging effect that's very true of shepherds here in the first century So these people that polite members of society, whoever that is, would have had very very little to do with, would not have been very comfortable being around for a great amount of time. I mean, after all, they spent a lot of their time with animals. They almost certainly didn't have a perfumed existence. Those are the very people that God intervenes into the world to say, Look here. It's right over there, and it's happening right now. The birth of the Son of God. Those are the people God first told about his son coming into the world. Well, how important is the birth of Jesus to God, to all of us? It is the most important birth ever. You know, my birth was relatively important, at least to me, but not to the great mass of humanity. The birth of Jesus is the birth above all births that have or ever will happen. Most important birth ever. Certainly, I think, worthy of our time and study. Now as we're talking about Jesus' birth, I actually want to back up in time for just a little bit and I want to focus on Mary before the birth of Jesus. Now, I have become convinced over the last several years that because of the uh, perhaps over-emphasis that has been placed on Mary by some of our religious neighbors that sometimes we almost view a study of Mary seemingly as an embarrassment that something we mention when we kind of have to but we don't want to be in any way associated with the over emphasis that has been placed upon her but because of that we don't really study and know the tremendous place in history that mary fills so let's take a look at mary before the birth of jesus backing up in luke to chapter one picking up in verse 26 we read now in the sixth month Sixth month of what? We'll talk about that. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Betrothal is something we really don't have a good you know, comparable situation that we can compare that to today. It's a relationship between engaged and fully married, much more so than simply an engagement. As important as an engagement is today, people break engagements. People become engaged. They they break it off. They become engaged again. You know, it's, it's not something you enter into lightly, but it certainly is not binding in any way. Not so in the first century with a betrothal. A man who was betrothed to a woman could not renounce her, could not end that betrothal except by divorce. And it's actually the same divorce that would be occurring after marriage. There is no difference in separating from a betrothal and separating from a marriage. It requires divorce in order to separate it. And that's why in this case with Mary, Joseph sought to put her away privately. Put her away is actually the same phrasing that's used for divorce. He was going to divorce her quietly. That is the only way Joseph was going to be able to end the betrothal with Mary. If the man died during the betrothal, the woman who was his betrothed, even though they were not truly married yet, was considered legally a widow and entitled to all of his estate. Essentially, they were married in everything except living together. Betrothal involved the establishment of a marriage covenant. The prospective bridegroom would travel from his father's house to the home of the prospective bride. There he would negotiate with the father of the young woman to determine the price he had to pay really and truly in the first century to purchase his bride. Once the bridegroom paid the purchase price, the marriage covenant was established And the young man and the young woman were regarded to be husband and wife in all aspects other than spending the day and night together. From that moment on, the bride was declared to be consecrated, sanctified, set apart, exclusively for her bridegroom. After the marriage covenant had been established, the groom would often leave the home then of the bride and return to his father's house There he would remain separate from the bride for a period of time up to potentially 12 months and this period of separation afforded the bride time to prepare for married life. That's very important then because in the first century in the uh, area of Judea in the land of Israel in this entire culture most young ladies were betrothed when they were 13 to 15 years old and so it would often be that At one point, you're a child, and then within a short period of time, suddenly you're about to be married to a man. The average age of a man being married, much like it has been here, at least in America, is several years older, sometimes 10 to 15 years older than the age of the bride. So you've been around mama for a good while, and now suddenly you're about to be married to a man you may not know well at all, And it's time to grow up. It's time to learn from your mother what is going to be expected of you because you may very well be a mother within a short period of time after you become married. It is almost certainly during this period of time, this age window, that Mary was found to be with child. She is betrothed. She's probably 13 to 15 years old. Joseph is betrothed to Mary. Joseph almost certainly is in this betrothal period preparing a place for Mary and Joseph, for the two of them to live together, Mary is suddenly found to be with child. That is the problem that Joseph sees in this arrangement. The groom had occupied himself with all of these arrangements, but in this case with Mary, this is the problem. She is found to be with child before they came together is the language of the text. Picking up again, we read this a moment ago. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with with you. Blessed are you among women. You know, Mary certainly was blessed. No other woman in the history of the world would ever have the honor God has given to her. You know, I really don't believe that the moment Jesus is born that he is speaking. The moment Jesus is born that he has all of these things that he is telling other people, that he's able to stand up holding one finger out and keeping himself off the ground. I believe he came into the world as a baby. There's no indication from Scripture that while he is one month old, while he is three months old, six months old, a toddler, that he is anything other than as you would expect him to be, fully human yet divine in that mystery that we have of the incarnation. Mary is the one that took care of Jesus when he was one day old, one week old, when he had some sort of problem, when he skinned his knee, whatever it may have been, She is the one God entrusted with his son when he came into the world. Talk about not only an honor but a responsibility. That is Mary. Look what the angel says to her. Blessed are you among women. We sometimes seemingly have had a problem saying something so fundamental to the text. Blessed are you among women. The angel continues... Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Again, probable 13, 14, or 15-year-old. That's an assumption based on the culture of the time. But can you imagine... Can you imagine? What is Mary's response to this? New King James, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? That flies right over the head of most people today. What do you mean? She didn't know any men. She didn't know Bob the butcher. She didn't know the person across the street. That's not of course what it means. We understand that. Let's be careful that we don't turn it into some sort of a theological in the know, so to speak, kind of thing. That's New King James, it's faithful to the text. It does not explain contemporarily what is meant by what Mary said. Look at the English Standard Version. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? How will I conceive and bear a son since I do not know a man In the biblical meaning of that and since I am a virgin, since I have not been with a man? I kind of like this one. This is the Contemporary English Version. Mary asked the angel, how can this be? I'm not married. How indeed, and how unfortunate that that certainly would not make any sense at all to people today. Mary is not married. She is betrothed. She is not married. She is not spending her days and nights with Joseph. She is a virgin, and she does not know a man in the biblical sense of the term. How is this possible? How will I conceive and bear a son? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born shall be called the Son of God. That is how. Look what he says next. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. That's the six months that was being talked about before. Mary's relative Elizabeth, the mother of John, often called John the Baptist, she is six months along in her pregnancy when the angel appears to Mary and says, You are also going to conceive. Look at the next sentence. For with God, nothing will be impossible. It's been my experience that when a problem occurs in life, we seem to spend most of our time arguing about how there's no hope. Nothing can possibly be done This is doom. We talk about doom and gloom. With God, nothing is impossible. God may choose not to solve the problem for us, but do not put the word impossible in front of God. Please don't do that. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This possible, this probable 13, 14, 15-year-old girl says, So be it. I am the Lord's servant. Now, I want you to think about the consequences of that decision that she made right there. The rest of her life, people would have looked at her with those kind of eyes. We know what we're talking about. There she goes. There she goes. Joseph thought that she had stepped out of the bounds of the permissible, uh, of the proper, into sinful behavior. That's why he was about to divorce her. Even Joseph thought that. It took an angel's visit. Convince Joseph that no, 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 do not conclude that. Do not fear to take Mary to be your wife. Angels didn't appear to the rest of the town. Angels didn't appear to the people who would have known the story and heard about it. In fact, when you look at John chapter 8, it's not the topic of this morning's lesson. When you look at John chapter 8 and that great boxing match between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, the Jewish leaders hit Jesus and say, we have Abraham for our Well, why would they say that? The implication is very, very strong. We don't know who your dad is. Even a few verses later, they say, we are not illegitimate children. Jesus is an adult. Why would they say that to him? We aren't illegitimate children. we, We don't have a clue about you. This decision followed Mary her whole life. Yet she decided right there as a probable young girl... I am the Lord's servant. Can't be thinking about the future. When the opportunity to be God's servant comes, we have to take it and grab hold. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered into the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth is her relative and Elizabeth is pregnant with John, who would be called John the Baptist, John the Immerser, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. She goes and spends some time with her relative. Elizabeth, the future mother of John the Baptist, uh, the text suggests very strongly here, is Mary's cousin. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, Mary coming into the house to the area, that the babe, John, leapt in her womb, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, here's a question. The baby here, John, has to be a person before he is born. When Mary comes into the presence of Elizabeth, the unborn John that the Spirit has been upon since he had been conceived, he was... This unborn John responds to the presence of Jesus unborn in Mary. This is not simply a a regular kick or any of that kind of thing. That is not what this is. So a baby is, in fact, a person before they're born. That statement right there has consequences for the issue facing our society about the unborn. Will we be true to the text and to what God has said about the unborn? That's another topic but an important one. Then she, Elizabeth, spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Remember the spirit's in Elizabeth and she recognizes the mother of my Lord, speaking of the unborn Jesus, the mother of my Lord should come to me. For indeed as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Elizabeth is speaking by the Spirit. Notice, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has instructed Elizabeth to state, the babe John leapt in her womb, not as a regular kick, not having some kind of boxing match or whatever it is the unborn children seem to do. The babe leapt in her womb for joy. John was happy, not yet born, to be in the presence of Jesus for continuing with the statement for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord and Mary said my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior often this is called the Magnificat from the Latin translation of this first phrase Magnificat anima mea dominum magnify soul my Lord and this is often set to choral music it's often sung in religious services Now, there's a version that sometimes is showing on the screen uh, when congregations are together. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. My soul magnifies the Lord, spoken here by Mary. Spoken here by Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has regarded the lowly state of His maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. We need to continue calling Mary blessed above all women. She is the one God entrusted with the incarnation of His Son. So I really think we don't hold up Mary as much of an example as we should. Uh, It's probably, as I said, a reaction to the overreaction, an overemphasis put upon Mary by some of our religious neighbors. But she needs to be called what she is, blessed and the maidservant of God. The rest of her statement and song, I would suggest you read it here in Luke chapter 1, is a wonderful reading. Mary moved by God. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Remember Elizabeth is about six months along in her pregnancy? Mary seems to stay possibly until right before or right after John is born. So when Mary returns back to Nazareth, she is about three months along in her pregnancy. Let's ask a few other kind of more off-the-wall questions, but important. Where was Jesus born? Um, We read in Luke 2, 15, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds, back into the fields, said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Let's go take a look. Let's go take a look. John chapter 7. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Quite so, quite so. And here in a map, you can see a modern day map. Bethlehem is just a few miles south of Jerusalem and what sometimes is called the West Bank, there in the land of Israel. And when you get to Bethlehem, the traditional spot, supposedly, where Jesus was born in the manger is identified by that area almost, I don't mean to be offensive, but it almost looks like a fireplace to me sometimes, right in the middle of it. That is not a fireplace, not at all, but right in the middle of it there on the bottom, that is identified traditionally as to where Jesus was born. No one will ever know for sure, but that's where all the pilgrims go when you go to visit Bethlehem. Let's ask another question. What year was Jesus born? Well, in the 6th century, the Roman monk, mathematician, astronomer, he was a person of many hats, uh, Dionysus Exegus, Dionysus the Little, reformed the calendar to pivot around the birth of Jesus. I mean, there wasn't an A.D. 70 in A.D. 70. They were counting by years from a certain event. But as Christianity began to take hold throughout the Roman Empire and the world, they set the calendar trying to date it from the birth of Jesus. That's what Dionysus here did. He dated the nativity 750 years from the founding of Rome, calculated to the date King Herod died. That should have been year zero, right? Should have been year zero. Unfortunately, mathematician, but he made a mistake. He miscalculated because Herod only died 749 years after the traditional founding of Rome, thus in 4 BC. So Jesus, strangely enough, appears to have been born in a roughly 4 BC, four years before Christ, that's not because he was early before his time somehow. It's because the math was, in fact, odd. And that Herod died in 4 B.C. His um, killing of the innocents was to kill anyone two years or younger. So it really could have been 6, 5, 4 B.C. Somewhere in that vicinity is roughly the year in which Jesus was born. Other aspects of Jesus' birth. Here's one that always leads to a lot of speculation. What day was he born? I will tell you the day he almost certainly was not born, and that's December 25th. Uh, There were a lot of speculations in the 2nd century A.D. about the birth of Jesus, the date of his birth. And here's a statement from Clement of Alexandria, an early Christian writer in A.D. 195. He said, there are those who have calculated not only the year of our Lord's birth, but also the day. They say it took place in the 28th year of the Emperor Augustus on May 20th. Others say, notice, it's not unanimous. Others say that he was born on April the 19th or 20th. So what's the answer? Nobody knew in the second century. No one knows today. But uh, I would suggest very strongly it is not almost certainly toward the end of December. Does that mean I will not think about the birth of Jesus in December? How can you not? How can you not? I think it's a great idea to consider the birth of Jesus any day and every day. So when we're thinking about the birth of Jesus, go back again to Luke chapter 2. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were very afraid, very afraid. The angel said to them, fear not, don't be afraid. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The angels came to the shepherds and said, essentially, this great plan that God has to reconcile humanity to himself that he's been planning before the world was ever born, it's here. And it's happening right over there. You've got to go see it. The call to come back to God began that day, right there in Luke chapter 2. And that call to come back to God continues to this day. The birth of Jesus, the most important birth ever, ever. And it is the only reason you and I have any hope. So when we're thinking about the birth of Jesus, I want to ask, do you have hope this morning? If you are not yet a member of God's family, you do not have any hope at all. You need to turn your life over to God. You need to turn away from living for yourself. You need to understand what God and Jesus did for you and commit your life to God and to Jesus by dying in water and being raised to walk in newness of life. Most important birth ever. If you're not a member of God's family, that call is still made for you to go see today. On the other hand, if you are a member of God's family, have I been living consistent with what God did by coming into the world, being Jesus incarnate? Is my life living for God the way it should be? If not, today's your day to change it. The call started right here with these shepherds, and the call is still made to you and me today. Will I be listening? The choice is up to us. We gather together on the first day of the week to remember not only in this case today the birth of Jesus, but the death of Jesus. He came into the world, came into the world and became flesh, lived his life and died, so that you and I would have that hope of eternal life. When we gather together to partake of the bread, we remember His body being given for us. Every time we partake of that, every Sunday morning, we we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again so before we partake of the bread let us return thanks for what God has done for us will you pray with me please our father we are so thankful that before the world began you made a plan to redeem humanity to redeem me to redeem each of us from the choices we made to live for ourselves as we partake of this bread we would ask that we would examine our lives examine ourselves Not that we are holy or worthy of partaking of this, but that we would commit to making our lives live for you and to recommit our lives to doing what we should be doing as grateful children forgiven through the death of your son. So we ask your blessings on the bread as we partake of it. And through Jesus' name we pray, amen. We also gather together to partake of the cup, the juice in the cup reminding us that not only was Jesus' body offered for us on the cross, but that he shed his blood so that we might have forgiveness of sins. Let's pray and give thanks for the cup. Father, we are so thankful for the death of Jesus, the gift that he gave of his life, of his body, of his blood, so that we would have forgiveness through him. We would ask that as we partake of this fruit of the vine that we would Focus on the joy that we should have and the love that was shown for us with you having a plan for us and Jesus dying on the cross and shedding his blood so that we would be forgiven. Dear Son, we pray. Amen. Not actually part of the Lord's Supper, but we also use the first day of the week as a convenient time to contribute of what we have earned to promote the work of God and the care for the saints and the needy here as a collection. That's not happening corporately, collectively here today, but I hope we are all making plans to give as we have been prospered so that we can share what we have that's been freely given to us. Let's pray for the offering. Father, you have blessed us so tremendously here in America and so tremendously in our lives. We have so much more than we need, Father. We would ask that as we have prospered, we would purpose in our hearts to give and to share and that we would always share what we have to help other people. Thank you again, Father, for the gift you've given to us. Dear Son, we pray. Amen.